0: You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about, actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property.
1: Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what she has to say about contracts. All the things you must do before you buy a property, all the risks you have with calling off and off the plan contracts. It's a must listen episode before you buy a property.
2: And a really good point with that as well are the pest and building that are being offered to purchases that have been organised by the vendor or the vendor's mm. agent. 90% of the time, I'll be sent a contract with a pest and building or a strata report, um, but they are never told that in order for them to legally rely on that, they have uh-huh. to buy it. Yes.
1: Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Boot Camp. And we have a cracking dumbo of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking.
0: In this episode, we pick the brains of Jenny Tonner, who is going to help us explore the legal side of buying a property. Jenny's been working in conveyancing for more than 30 years, and after spending decades at two of Australia's leading law firms, that's Mallison's Stephen Jacques and Alan's Arthur Robinson, she started her own business, Cremorne Conveyancing, back in 2010. Chris has used Jenny's services with plenty of clients over many years, and coincidentally in the last week, one of my team has dealt with Jenny as well. Chris says that he's always been impressed with the diligence she goes through to make sure his clients are always doing the right thing. In this interview, we'd love to lift the lid on where it can all go wrong with conveyancing, what Jenny sees regularly with unfair contracts, all the risks associated with not doing your checks properly, and what can happen when you buy off the plan. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks for joining us. Oh,
2: thank you for having me.
1: Thanks, Jenny. Thank you for coming in. Good to see you. Thank
2: you. Good to see you.
1: Um, I've been quite excited to do this episode because I think we haven't really gone into a lot of detail in you know, over 50 episodes now about contracts. And Jenny, can you tell me about a time when a client has signed a contract and come to you after that and wanting to get out of it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, there's just miles of uh, episodes right there. Um, I yeah, definitely. Um, off the plan is a classic example of this, where mm. they've bought a couple of years ago um, at the peak, at a price at the peak, and three years later, it's now close to settling, and. The loan that they were sort of promised three years ago is now a lot less and they haven't got the funds to complete because three years ago they were told to save 20%. Now they yep. need to save 30 40%. Mm. Um, and the value of the unit's a lot less. Okay. And so they can't complete. Mm. And their only option would be to on-sell. But they're on-selling in a decreasing market. Yeah. So they're not going to get the price that they contracted for. So they've come to try and get out of it. Sometimes I'm successful. Uh, It depends on the developer and um, a lot of the time the developer will just stick to their contract and we have to try and on-sell it. And we did one about two months ago where he was able to on-sell it and he was eventually, I think he was out of pocket, Effectively, the stamp duty and the agent's commission okay. that he had to pay on the on sale.
1: Which is basically probably his just, you know, his deposit really, probably his 10% roughly. Yeah. Do you mind, I mean, don't talk about the actual client. Do you mind just giving some rough numbers on that scenario there where you spoke about the person who bought at the peak and do you remember like some numbers behind it?
2: Uh, I think he contracted to sell for, uh, sorry, to buy for nine ninety, mm-hmm. and he ended up selling for 800 Ooh. Right.
1: And so he sold the property at eight hundred. Where does that loss go? Who has to? Where? Who loses money there? He does. And does he lose the four hundred ninety thousand plus stamp duty plus selling costs?
2: Well, he was able to get the eight ten, so he was able to get effectively ninety percent right. covered. So he was out effectively the deposit he'd put down. Yep. But on the on sale, he's also got the agent's commission from the sale mm-hmm. and additional legal fees. Mm. So he would have been out. The deposit plus the stamp duty he paid. Yep. And he had two sets of legal fees because I had to act for him on the on sale. And the selling wow. cost as well. Yeah.
0: But there's, yeah. there's a lot of questions under here. I've got
2: just two for you quickly. Firstly, was that an investor or, or an owner-occupier? He was initially an owner-occupier, but then he got transferred overseas with work. And that was the other killer for him because he then was based overseas. So his lending ability, which you would know, Chris, decreased even more because he wasn't in Australia.
0: And obviously, you know, we talk about the dangers of off the plan purchases all the time. And one of them is that fact that you don't know what's ahead of you. And that's two things there. One is the Mm. lending climate change. And the second one that he got a transfer. and, And that was a double whammy in terms of his lending,
2: but and but, your circumstances yes. just simply change. <laughs> we yeah. do,
1: don't we? Life's never predictable, is it? It, it
2: just <laughs> does. And, and and the other factor is that these off the plans, you know, when I started thirty years, even twenty years ago, the maximum period that it took to convert to complete a contract would be about two years. Mm. They're now entering contracts where they haven't even got development consent. The vendor hasn't even got development consent. Yeah. So your deposit's tied up while they're getting development consent and the vendor has the right to rescind the contract if they can't get the development consent that they want. But you're then waiting for it to be built. So some of these contracts can be three, four, five years. Wow. And if your circumstances are changing, but the market's changing. It's a very difficult market to put yourself in. I, I personally don't think I'd ever do it myself.
0: No. And so are people going and signing a contract or have they been going and signing a contract for off the plan without seeking legal advice prior to signing that contract? Sometimes. I mean, so they can sign with a cooling off period basically. Yeah. And then because of sunk cost and the consistency bias and, and for listeners, go back to episode one where we talk all about these behavioural biases and we've got a checklist there for you to download too if you want to check the website. So when you're buying a property, you often, you start committing, you know, you might commit to your, your 0.25% deposit in terms of what people typically put down and when they sign a contract with the cooling off period, right? for the so, cooling off period. Yeah. And that's yeah. just for the cooling off period so that they risk that and they think, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to lose that if I pull out. So therefore that's money I've put in. And so in people's minds, we think that sunk cost, we don't want to lose that. So therefore we continue with the purchase, sometimes against our best instincts, but then you've also got this idea, of the consistency bias, which is I start to behave in a certain way. I've told people I'm buying this property. As soon as you verbalise it as well and you start acting in a certain way, as human beings, we tend to want to continue in that path because we want to verify that we didn't make a dumb decision in the first place and there's all this stuff mm-hmm. you know, tied in with that. So this is massive when it comes to off the plan because the risks are so much greater. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit about the sort of risks people are taking with the actual contract itself. And how easily they can get themselves into a hole.
2: Well, a classic example is they go to an open a display home and they're kind of like, oh, you're going to miss out. and mm. We don't like to miss out. So they'll go in and they'll commit and they'll sign a contract on that Saturday. They'll put down their cooling off deposit. And I've got five days to, one, get a contract, two, go through that contract. Three, try and negotiate changes. Mm. And you guys will know that developer contracts are very vendor friendly yeah. a lot of the time. And once you're in a cooling off contract, once you've exchanged, I have the right to ask for changes, but they have no obligation to agree to them. Mm. Wow. So if we're not in a cool off, then I've got much more of a – a leg to stand on to try and get changes to a contract. So I always try to say to clients, please don't sign a cooling off contract till I let me look at it and try and then before you do it.
0: And that's an excellent point,
2: listeners, because
0: what, okay, in New South Wales, right, and we're talking about New South Wales conveyancing here, right? Um, and, and, Roughly the same principle applies throughout the country, but in New South Wales there's a thing called uh, a 66W. So that is a, a, a certificate, and I'm sure you can explain what that is, but I mean, look, I'll quickly explain it. You can go into more detail. Um, that's that's a certificate where the conveyance or the solicitor actually waives the, the purchases cooling off rights away, right? And if you're going to buy under those conditions, well, then you uh, have to have done all your checks and had your contract reviewed and all that sort of stuff before you actually sign the dotted line. But if right. you sign with a cooling off period, the idea of that is actually been created to protect consumers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the idea is you can sign a contract, Ms or Mr Buyer, and then in the cooling off period, you can iron out all the problems. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that it's not that
2: easy to iron them out in the cooling off mm-hmm. period. No, Ooh. and depending on the developer... They will just simply flat out refuse to even discuss their contract. They won't even commit to deleting a land tax adjustment for a first home buyer. Mm. You know, so, so something as simple as that. It's, um, That's right though, isn't it? The
1: developer's contract and, you know, from what I've seen, it's, no, it's not just a quickly put together. These things have been carefully crafted to stop basically buyers changing anything or pulling out there's so many clauses in them. So after you sign that contract, it's not just for off the plan. It's also when you're buying established, right? You should mm. never sign a contract and just think, oh, well, I've got the five-day cooling off because what if you want to change something in that contract? You're saying it's pretty much impossible.
2: Yeah. So it's really interesting now because cooling off both off the plan and, and established, you, where it was brought in, specifically to allow people to get their property off the market and get their due diligence done Mm. rather than be gazumped because Mm. there was this period of just constant gazumping by purchasers while they were waiting for loan approval, pest and building, blah, blah. And so it allows the purchaser to take it out of the market while they do that and instead of losing 10%, they lose the 0.25%. That's the benefit for the purchaser but the risk is if they can't proceed or they can't continue for any reason – whether it's the contract uh, has, you know, horrendous conditions or the pest and building, they lose the 0.25% and and that's what the vendor gets for having their property taken out of the market. Mm.
0: And let's just Mm. put that in context. So, say you're buying a property and you've offered a million dollars. That means that you're going to pay $2,500 for the privilege of actually taking that property off the market Mm -hmm. while you got yourself organised and if you back out of it, then you leave that Mm -hmm. with the vendor. Mm
1: -hmm. But you should never, it sounds like this, you should never do that without getting the contract still checked. You yeah,
2: know? I just I can't emphasise that enough. And it comes down to what, you know, people are in this moment, they don't want to pay for something if they're not sure they want to proceed with it. Mm. And this is just a constant thing that I've got to try and get people to understand that is it really worth the $200 of my advice on a contract or the $400 on a and building or a Strata report mm. or um, at the risk of of losing or not being able to complete your $2 million property. It's,
0: it's just yeah. nuts, isn't it? Because like you say, yeah. people don't want to spend money if they're not sure they want to go ahead with it. And it's like I've got to wind that back even and say, well, if you're not sure you want to go ahead with it, why are you even going down that path? Mm. Yeah. Because, because once you start going down that path, you probably will end up buying it. Mm. You know, And then you might make the mistake. You, know, you might make a massive mistake. It's easier to make mistakes than it is not make mistakes when
2: it comes to property.
1: But a lot of buyers think that all contracts are equal, Right. Is that correct or is, is there standard?
2: Yeah. A standard residential contract in the market is relatively standard. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm still astounded by some of the contracts I see. Uh, you know, you'll have a standard contract where it'll be a completion period, a default interest if that you don't complete, um, the right to serve a notice Uh state of condition, repair, blah, blah. But then I'll see some contracts where they'll say, if you don't do this, if you don't deliver the transfer within so many days, we're going to charge you $300 plus GST. You'd, we're going to, uh, you know, there was one contract I've seen where the vendors solicitors drafted a contract where if you didn't complete on the completion date, if the purchase didn't complete, the vendor solicitor had the right to charge you nearly $2,000 more to cover what they considered was additional legal fees. Mm. <laughs> and and there's nothing around that to stop it. And in the market that we've had the last six years or so, you can't negotiate them out. Yeah. Because you've just got to exchange as quickly as you can if you want that property. It is changing now. So. Yeah. Can
1: you explain how that change has really worked there? Because, I mean, you're right. In that boom market, you know, that property was hot, it had six buyers on it. Um, mm-hmm. You were really keen on it. If you missed it, you've already missed four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, you've really got to act fast. Mm-hmm. And then the real estate agent would say, there's no way we're doing a deal unless you sign a 66 W. Contract. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of not what it's like now. What's, what, what are you finding now that most contracts are going with cooling off? They're not signing 66 Ws?
2: Look, for the first time in a really, really long time, I'm seeing cooling off periods in the inner suburbs of, of Sydney. Yeah. And I've been doing this for 30 something years and I've never seen that. Um, in that, it's a reaction still, I think, because people, uh, you know, agents or vendors are thinking, gosh, we're not getting 20 people through our doors every inspection and we haven't got 20 registered bidders. We've only got five. Um, so we'll, we'll sell and, yes, we'll agree to a cooling off, which is great because it, the, there's more control now. It's been shifted more towards the purchaser because they simply can't commit until they've got more surety about their lending now. And you would know this, Chris, with the Mm -hmm. changing in lending. We were exchanging on pre-approvals for the last three or four or five years, which was never the case before. Never. Um, We had to change the the way that banks were offering pre-approvals in order for people to go to auction or or go into an unconditional. That's changed now.
0: But you sort of had to though, because this is a thing that used to always bother me. It's like the, it's the chicken and the egg. You know, the bank would say, Yeah, there's your pre-approval, off you go to auction and you and you're saying, Can I have unconditional approval, please? Well no, have you got a value uh, you know, you need a valuation. Oh, can I get a valuation, please? No, you haven't had an offer except you haven't exchanged contracts, but I'm mm-hmm. going to auction. Mm-hmm. So oh well, okay, go to auction and we'll take the auction price. You know, I mean this sort of circular logic that you would have these yep. arguments with the banks and and, and it's like Mortgage brokers, I don't know if you ever did this, Chris, you don't have to admit it or not, but I mean, mortgage brokers were fudging um, front page, signed front pages of contracts yep. in order to get the bank to do evaluations so that the buyer could actually get some certainty around their finance. And it was just ridiculous. Um, so I guess the five day cooling off takes away that. But certainly, if you're going to auction still, you're not going to get a five day cooling off if you try to buy it prior to auction. No. So th- we're talking here about private treaty properties. Um, And properties that are offered for sale after they've passed in at auction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Through that boom, it was really quite challenging for broking because the client would want to have 100% certainty that they're going to be able to afford it, especially when it's in lender's mortgage insurance territory. They've got a very limited Mm. deposit. If that valuation doesn't come in at purchase price, they can't settle. So if they were going to go to an auction and and bid, if that valuation did come in low, they couldn't settle and they've already signed an unconditional contract and it, there, there's no way out. Mm. And so I remember so many Friday nights, um, you know, pre-auction mm-hmm. coaching a client through the risks, coaching through what they're buying, the quality of the asset and whether it's really a risk or not. Mm. And the only thing that really saved them, I never had a valuation come in low, mainly because they always bought established property. They always bought generally really good assets when they and they didn't go crazy on auction day. They didn't just kind of overbid. It was definitely happening and it definitely happens in the apartment market and more risky assets because banks look at it and go, hang on a sec, we just don't want to take this risk on, you know, let's under, under, undervalue it. So, um, Yeah,
2: I mean, let's be honest, the banks really have had a slap <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they have realised the amount of risk that they have been exposed to mm. by lending and mm. offering more than what people could afford and, mm. and doing that. So they have, they have absolutely scaled back yep. on what they're prepared to lend and the risk they're prepared to take and they're not going to do a valuation until your pre-approval definitely not, no. is still subject yeah. is not enough, <laughs> mm. absolutely not. You're not going to get a valuation before the auction. So my advice and Chris' advice would be if you're wanting to borrow 80% or more, you've really yep. got to think about whether you can do it or not. but that, that, That's the way it used to be. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the way I... My, my nearly my whole career, that is the advice I've always given. Mm. But in the, you know, it changed. Um, because of the market and the demand and the need to exchange quickly. Um, but that's shifted now and it's turning around back.
0: I, I can honestly say, though, I mean, I've been in real estate now since 2000. When I entered the, the market, I was a selling agent for six years. And, and certainly for the first three years of my career, it was boom. It was like mm. it was, like it was you know, 18 months, two years ago. Nothing sold without a 66W. w yeah. A cooling off period, what is that? You know, and we're talking inner city areas yeah. as well. Then we hit 2003, September 2003. I can carbon date stamp that as being the end of that boom. And we entered three years, in the next three years of my selling career. We, we traded a lot with the cooling off period. And it's exactly that. It comes down to supply and demand and urgency in the market and about getting a deal done. And then I got out of the market for a year and then I'm back in in 2007. It took off again until the GFC. And then we had it, slow down again. And so, you know, we we were purchasing with cooling off period in that 2010 to to the end of 2012 period again. So I've seen it, definitely the cooling off period, you know, raise its head Mm. as an option, as a viable option for selling agents. But what I'm seeing now that's different, and you tell me if you're finding this, is the extension of that cooling off period. Yeah. So it's going from typically, you get five business days, you get up to 5pm on the fifth business day, right? Full Mm -hmm. fifth business day. But the requests for extensions, Primarily around the finance piece Mm -hmm. seems to be a daily occurrence now. Are you finding that?
2: Yeah, definitely. And it is all about, it is the lending. It depends on the lender. Chris will be in a position and know the lender's more better than I do, but I have a sort of fair understanding if they're going with a particular lender that they're going to be able to turn that around in five business days or we will have to ask for seven, ten business days up front. Mm. because we know that lender, is, there's just no way they're going to turn that around. Or we go with the five business days on the hope that the vendor will agree to an extension. And usually they do, because by then they've got a contract, it's mm. exchanged in their head, it's sold. So, uh, but yeah, absolutely. It's but you've have the
1: risk though, right, still? It's,
2: yeah, but you've still got to remember that your time for completion has already started. Yes. Yep. So if you've got a four, if you've agreed to a four week completion mm. and it takes two weeks to get unconditional loan approval... Yeah. You've you then know, got two, two weeks. weeks to get your <laughs> your your loan finalised, your yeah. loan doc signed, the legals to all be finalised, because we won't commit for doing any of your legals until you've got unconditional. yeah, You've got to remember that your time for completion has already started. It doesn't start once you go unconditional. It's a really good point. Yeah, Yeah, and
1: you can't last, you can't rely on a pre-approval at the moment. So just because the calculators are moving so fast and if you do have to change that pre-approval within because you're going up a bit above what you've got to pre-approve for or your situation's changed, you know, you're going to have to go through the whole process again. So you do need to be extremely careful. I mean, in Brisbane, it's been quite common that you would get a two week finance clause, you get your finance signed off in two weeks and then you've got another two weeks Mm. or four weeks to settle. And it's kind of feeling like it's getting like that in Sydney. It's kind of a lot of contracts are signing with a two week cooling off, knowing that, you know, just to get the deal done, get it off the market and then we can get the finance done and if that valuation comes in low or you have any problems with that, we've still got time to go to another lender and get you signed off so mm. you know I think it's a good thing for for buyers especially in a market when there's you know lots of volatility they just need a bit more extra protection now Let's mm. go
0: back to some of those clauses you were talking about, you know, the, the unfair clauses that you see in contracts. You talked about some of those penalty clauses for, you know, delays and that sort of stuff. But what are some of the other things that, I mean, and this is mostly contained in the special conditions, correct? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I see it. I see one contract might, might have one page of special conditions from yeah. a fairly savvy property focused lawyer that gets what they're doing or conveyancer. And then you might find another one that's got you know, for I've seen up to fifteen pages of special yep.
2: conditions, and it's, it's probably the same contract I looked at. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, I, and I and I often joke that they must just have these all pre-printed in. They file they? Just pull them it's out, and chuck them so in every contract. So
2: frustrating, Veronica, because they just <laughs> they just populate mm. their standard a standard contract, blah, blah, blah. They don't tailor it to the property or the Mm. transaction itself. And you waste time trying to go through all these. uh, One had 100 special conditions once and you've got to go through all of this Mm. and then try and get, you know, 20 changes made for someone who's trying to get an exchange of a property mm. off the market. It's shouldn't, shouldn't just have been crazy.
0: Any... I've seen swimming pool clauses on properties that don't have swimming pools. Yeah. I mean, that's how ridiculous it gets. And it's just <laughs> simply
2: delete from your document before mm. you yeah. press print, right? Uh, so there's things like people's uh, misunderstanding on the swimming pool mm. provisions. People have tried to change the foreign resident capital gains tax certificates yep. in that we still have to complete even if they haven't provided us that mm-hmm. certificate, right. which is... Hello. Um, mm-hmm. Release of deposits is a classic oh, example, yeah. right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm willing to admit that I was around before that clause came in and the whole reason <laughs> why that clause came in was because people couldn't get access to the equity in their homes. So let's, let's
0: and, yeah. explain exactly what, that, what it does yeah. And, yeah, do. and what it yeah. is. Yeah.
2: So a release of the deposit clause allows the vendor access to the deposit before completion under a standard contract, The deposit is not the vendor's until completion, it's held in trust while the purchaser goes off and completes all their inquiries post-exchange and gets everything organised. And if they don't find anything through that due diligence and their inquiries on the vendor and on the property, they proceed to completion. On completion, that deposit is then released once the matter completes. Release of deposit clauses allows a vendor to get access to that deposit from exchange. Now, Sometimes the release of the deposit clause will just say be, vendor wants it. Hmm. That's it. <laughs> Under no circumstances should you ever agree to that. No. God. Other ones will say that because they want to buy a property and they want to use it as deposit or stamp duty for the purchase of another property. And I get it. But the risk for the purchaser is you don't know who, where, where your deposit goes. So if you do have the right to rescind, uh, you don't know where to get it. So your only option is to sue for it. Yep. So the risk is on you and the, the, the cost is on you. Where a vendor and the whole reason why that clause came in was because vendors didn't have access to funds to buy another property once they sold because there was no such thing as deposit bonds or bank guarantees at the time the clause came in and bank, you just didn't get access and to the equity.
0: Offset accounts either. I mean, a, no. a, the reality is that if some, if a, if a, an owner wants to upgrade or downsize or whatever before they sell, they should go to their bank and, and see what facility they can draw up to give them access to the equity in that property to write a cheque. Which or, is or however there is. now. Yeah. 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 But still you see this clause pop up. Probably yeah. about half, half right. the contracts you see roughly. Yeah. Would it be?
2: Uh, yeah. 75% right. that high. Wow.
0: Mm. I
2: and never have it in my contract. No. Because – I know I will never get it agreed to. Well, this is
0: the thing. It's the first thing. When I was selling, I used to say to a seller, obviously back then I was helping people sell, not buy, and I'd say, look, ask your lawyer or your conveyancer to put a release of deposit clause in your contract because that is the first indication from a buyer that they're interested because what happens is that the buyer will take that contract to their lawyer or conveyancer. The conveyancer will immediately say, oh, we're going to get rid of, we want Mm -hmm. to get rid of the release of deposit clause. For me, it was an early warning system. And so Mm -hmm. that's how we know if someone's serious enough about your property to take their con- the contract to their lawyer. yeah, But that was the pure purpose of it. It was never put in there so they could actually get the money. yeah. But it's quite handy like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but
2: I mean when you think about the risk of that for the purchaser mm. to the couple of hundred dollars that a vendor would need to pay yeah. to get a deposit bond or whatever the bank charges you to get yeah. access, you know, um, it's just not worth it. And so you just can't, you know, you shouldn't, if I have it in there and a purchaser shouldn't agree to take any of that risk on. Yeah. Now, but What yeah. happens though, yeah.
1: I guess a clients had to do it recently and I've had lots of conversations regarding this and, you know, I'll talk to them and I'll explain why I think it's crazy. You shouldn't sign the contract because you just don't know where that deposit goes, is it could be any reason why this settlement could fall over that's out of your control that you just don't even know about yet mm. and trying to get that deposit back, which is all your money, mm-hmm. that process could take you years. So, mm-hmm. And then it's, you're it's out of
0: the market, you can't uh, buy anything else just, you just, and
1: it's just a whole nightmare and mm-hmm. really it's just giving the, the seller, you know, a huge leg up and, you know, they're taking no risk. You're taking all the risk and sometimes they just still have to sign the contracts. And so you're saying that people are still signing that contract. Yep.
2: Yeah, they're still signing that contract because, you know, they've probably been told, oh, the risk is so small, but you're going to miss out on this property. Mm. We don't like to miss out. No. So they'll take the risk. So all I can do is try and minimize that risk. So I'll put, I'll try and change that contract so that the clause just doesn't say generically it's released for the purchase. I'll say, you need to tell us where Mm. uh, you're buying. We need to know who's got it. And you've got a warrant that there's no further release of deposit clause in the contract you enter into as a purchaser. So it can't be further released. Good point. You can also lodge a caveat after exchange of contracts on the title Mm. as a purchaser under a contract for sale. So you can try, I mean, it's not going to guarantee that you'll get your deposit back, but it will give you some form of comfort that you have registered an interest on the title. So they can't go and do anything without you knowing about it. Mm. Um, But that's all you can really do. Now
0: with that, what, I mean, this is only an issue really if the property can't settle or if you can rescind. So there's, and look, I'll, Put mm-hmm. out a couple of examples and please add to this. So I know I've seen the situations in the past where the owner of this property that's selling actually owes more money on it mm-hmm. than the sale price. So particularly in a, in a situation where somebody's lost money on a property, it does happen. Um, yep. If we go back to, I think it's episode <laughs> nine, I think we talk about having lemons in your portfolio. So it does happen. It happens roughly 10% of properties in Australia every single day sells at a loss, roughly. Yep. And there's data to support that. And if you want to know, send us a message via the elephantintheroom.com.au and I'll, I'll send you <laughs> links to that. So roughly 10% property every single day sells at a loss in Australia. In a situation where an owner is selling a property and they're taking a loss, if they don't have enough money to pay the bank however much they owe the bank, the bank will not let them settle. So you may have gone and bought that and paid your deposit in good faith and all the rest of it. And if they have then ha- accessed your deposit to start paying mm-hmm. down some of their debts, you're in big trouble because mm-hmm. you won't actually be able to settle on that property and not through your fault but because of the vendor's situation. Yep. So that's one example. And then the other side is the, is the side where you might want to rescind because of something that's come up through the searches or through that, that conveyancing process. Can you give us some examples on, on how a buyer might be able to rescind?
2: Uh, they would be able to rescind if through their inquiries they have found um, out that the vendor's done illegal work and one of the searches we order would, is an outstanding notices search with council. Mm. If that comes back and says there's a notice or order over the property for a renovation that was done to the property which was illegal and they've been told to rectify it, then there is law around that because under the conveyancing uh, sale of land regulations, a vendor has to disclose where they've done something like that because that impacts the value of the property and what you've bought it for. Mm. So there are provisions around that. If the vendor passed away after exchange, Mm. you're instantly now dealing with the estate of that person and completion is then subject to probate being granted. Wow. So depending on that you Whether know, the estate of that not. person, how quickly they mm. can get a, a, a transmission application to register in favour of the executor. You may not want to wait 12 months while that happens. You might just want to be able to rescind. But if the deposit was released to the vendor prior to mm. that, you're waiting for the estate yep. to be able to give you back that money. Yeah. You know, that's, that's probably another one. Do you see the lots of work
1: that's been done without council approval?
2: Not as much as, no, not not so much because of that warranty that was put in. So there's particular warranties in a contract for sale by legislation as part of the prescribed documents. So when I do a contract review, I will look at the contract, but then I'll look at the property on the web and I can see if, you know, and I'll ask my clients, have there been renovations? you know, probably 90% of the time the contract won't have a final occupation certificate Mm. or a building certificate or a home warranty insurance because they just generate their stock standard contract. You've got to ask those questions up front. When were the renovations Mm. done? Were they required to be approved by council? Where's the FOC?
0: It's interesting, isn't it, because I notice in a lot of contracts, well, actually I noticed that clause that basically says, oh, and, you know, it might be a special condition that says, you know, the vendor warrants or doesn't warrant any of the works, so or the, the vendor admits that some work's been done and they're not warranting anything, mm-hmm. you can't get a building
2: certificate or whatever. Mm-hmm. And
0: it's like, it's this sort of ass covering. <laughs> it is,
2: because if you know, but you disclose, you're fine. Yeah. Right. So if the vendor knows that they've done something without council approval and it should have been approved, mm. if you disclose that in your contract, you've covered yourself. Mm.
0: But even so, you might not find out for years. Mm. Like you know, I've heard situations where it looked all above board, you know, it, it, yep. and all the checks and everything prior to purchase seemed fine. And then years down the track, you might go and, and apply to do something. Mm-hmm. Council might come and have a look and, and say, "Hang on a minute, what's that doing there?" And mm-hmm. you've always been there. It was there when I bought it, and 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 you haven't even it hasn't even been flagged as something that might mm-hmm. have been unapproved. It's an unusual situation, but it does happen.
1: Well, that's right. Like if you bought something and the seller literally bought it off someone else and they the ones previous to them had done the work and they didn't get the cheques and then they just lived in the property. Sometimes mm. they're just completely unaware that they're selling something that yeah. hasn't been approved. Remember this Try place chasing that, them. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> years later, oh, well, you, you
2: got no right. Yeah. 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 I
1: mean, the place that we were looking at a couple of years ago in Melbourne, it had a decking over a drain that the council had to have access to. So really that decking shouldn't have been there because if something went wrong, the council would need to get access to this drain. And mm-hmm. um, so <laughs> then the drain was based, the decking was pretty much not really approved. Uh, and we had to kind of weigh up. Do we go ahead? Do we just buy it ignorance and just, you know, plead guilty, you know, if we get caught, you know, um,
2: it's so hard to do. at least knowing, yeah. right, before you enter into a contract, you can factor your pricing around
0: mm. it, right, it what seasons. that risk
2: is. Because you've got to remember that you buy the property as is at the date you enter into the contract, mm. which is why you do your pre-purchase inspections beforehand and you ask those questions, which is why you get me to look at a contract. So I can ask those questions and at least try and get answers because if I ask the question and the vendor says, no, we've done nothing, but then through our independent searches after exchange find that there's a notice over the property, um, then we know that they've, they haven't been honest with mm. us. That gives us more rights.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Okay. But, but once you settle... Done and dusted, is that right? Done and dusted. Right, okay. So this is only between, and in New South Wales is where we have exchange and that is the point at which it's unconditional or you've got your five-day cooling off period. Mm. But basically that's the point at which an agreement is made Um, and is somewhat binding. (laughs) It's more binding on the vendor than it is on the buyer if you've got a cooling off period. And then obviously then in between you've got what's called the settlement period where all this is done. And then on settlements when you basically pay the balance of the money, the bank hands over the, the the difference you then get the keys, right, mm-hmm. and you own it from mm-hmm. then. So in that period of time in the intervening time is really when all this is done. In different states, it's a slightly different process but somewhat similar, but mm. there's no such thing as exchange in different states. Are you familiar with the conveyancing rules in different states? Yeah, I
2: did that for a long time. Yep. In the law firms, I acted on sales around the country for a long time. I just can't do it now because mm. my licence limits me to New South Wales. But I with worked for companies that were national. Mm. So it allowed me to do work um, in every state, Yeah, which I did.
1: Yeah, and- I just want to ask you a question around, I mean, the checks that you do because there's a lot of conveyancing a lot of a lot of industries, a lot of online kind of cheap and cheerful players are popping out where it's like we can do everything for $990 mm. or we can do everything for $700. And I just wonder you know how that 's a profitable for these businesses to mm. do a you know a great service, how can they hire great you know experienced staff for that salary um, to to cover those very low fees, but then how can they do all the checks and how can they do a really great job what 's your experience of kind of those type of conveyances when you 're working on the other side and whether you would use one yourself, obviously.
2: Well, when someone rings me for a quote and they've been given a quote for $700 and I'll give them my quote, mm. which is 1500 mm. the first thing I say is, fine, have you asked them what they're not doing? Mm. Because they're not doing something. They're not doing something to make that profitable for themselves. So they're either not doing all the searches or they've just, they're so streamlined that they're not sending requisitions or they're not... Um, got experienced staff to know what to look for or what to ask. Um, And at the end of the day, if if the cost of $700 is what they want, then they'll go with that. But I've also had people who have done a conveyance with someone at that price and have then come to me saying it was an absolute nightmare because – I could never get them. Yep. I never knew what was going on. We didn't settle on the due date because we couldn't get things done. We couldn't get in contact with that person. And we paid default interest mm. while we were waiting to get completed. Yep. That, that's my experience. That's so, my, my, you know, <laughs> you, you've got to look at, again, you know, the, the price you're buying property in Sydney yep. uh, and weigh that up against the type of representation you want someone looking after you, both as a mortgage broker, as an agent, as a yep. conveyancer, in terms of you want to, uh, make sure that the person acting for you knows what they're doing and has the experience to know what to look for and what's not there that yeah, should be there. That's right. yeah. Off the plan again is a classic example of making sure their clauses, uh, cover things that the vendor doesn't want to do, you know, defects. Mm. Is a yeah. classic example of that. Even something as simple as making sure they hand over all the, all the instruction manuals and the warranties on completion. Yeah. You know, nothing, mm. uh, It's a simple clause that should be in every contract off the plan, but you've got to ask for it every time. And yeah. you move into an apartment, you don't know how to use any of your appliances because no manuals have been left. Mm.
1: Yeah, I've had so many experiences where, you know, over the years where clients have use these type of, and if you already got a contract review by the kind of these low cost providers, and I'll recommend, say, I reckon you should use a different conveyancer. you come up on that list more than once. <laughs> and, but you know one recently he did, he was a, he was buying a place in Brisbane and he decided to use a pretty famous kind of low cost one. And we <laughs> literally, for the space of weeks, they could, we couldn't hear from them. We would mm. call them, maybe a 45 minute wait, would leave a message. They wouldn't call us back. And we went days without hearing from them and settlement was coming and that was a licensed conveyance of so running their own little small business. They would have been on the phone in minutes and we would have had things done. And the last thing you want in this when you've only got four or six weeks is to, for things sure. just to go, you know, quiet. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy to save $700 or $1,000. It's just not worth it.
2: But they're not even willing to give you advice on the contract you're entering into. Yeah. Something you can rely on writing, you know, yeah. which is my obligation. Yeah. You've got to let them know because the 66W tells mm. you that I, Jenny, Connor, have are acting for these people. I've explained the contract. They understand the terms and conditions. They accept the terms and conditions. And they understand they're waving the cooling off. Now, in order for me to give that certificate, I've got to do all the things I've got to do in order yeah. to give that. Mm. Otherwise, I lose my license. Mm. And I don't know what the people who are charging at seven hundred dollars are doing in order to sign that certificate. You know,
0: I can tell you, as a certainly as a sales agent, not so much as a buyer's agent, because we do tend to deal with property specialists. So if you're dealing with a lawyer, your local generalist, mm. the local solicitor's office is often not the right place to go unless they specifically specialise in Mm. property. And obviously a conveyancer specifically specialises in property. But certainly on the sales side, you're dealing with all types, all types of lawyers. And it's really, and also these buyers that they do quite often, they run off and they go for the cheapest, you know, they can't see the value in it. And so to them, they just see it as a cost cost. It's mm-hmm. ticking a box. We interviewed Michael Farella from ION. We interviewed him some time back and he said the same thing around building your pest inspections and strata mm-hmm. reports, those sorts of things, that in ticking a box, that's not good enough. You really do need to actually understand that you are doing risk management. The episode's episode 10, people. So this is risk management. Risk management on the contract side of things is enormous in terms of what you're committing yourself to. And so... What I would see as a sales agent, you'd be wishing, that, hoping that the buyer will have one of those cheap and cheerful conveyances that will give them a 66W without really even talking to them, even though they're not meant to. Sometimes we were scratching our heads thinking, wow, these people got no idea mm-hmm. about this contract and yet we got a 66W, yippee, we're going to get a sale. You know, we're happy as a sales agent. But certainly the buyer's none the wiser that that is actually not helping them. They really do need to have better advice. And I think that's a really good point to say that if you're going for cheap and cheerful conveyancing, then they're not doing something. And that something could be the very thing that is really, really, really costly to you as a buyer.
2: Yeah. And a really good point with that as well are the pest and building that are being offered to purchases that have been organised by the vendor or the vendor's mm. agent. 90% of the time, I'll be sent a contract with a pest and building or a strata report. Uh, but they are never told that in order for them to legally rely on that, they Uh have to buy it. Yes, yes. They are never told that. It's like, here we are, we've made it so easy for you. You'll be able to offer and give me a contract with a 66W tomorrow because we've provided it all. One thing is it's great that it's there because it's allowed us to speed up that turnaround to get the client in a position to do that. But you don't know that inspector necessarily, that inspection company. You know, there's obviously, like everyone, there's better conveyances than others, there's better agents than others, better pests and building inspectors than others. And you're relying on a report that's been organised by a vendor. It may not disclose things, but unless you've got a legal agreement with and have bought that agreement, you can't sue that company for not disclosing something that should have been disclosed. Mm. Or at least go and get your own independent one. But they're just not prepared to spend that couple of hundred dollars to do it. Wow. And it's so important because you buy it in the condition as at the date of the contract. So, unless the contract says otherwise, if the oven's not working, if there's pests and termites in your subfloors and those beautiful wooden floors that you've bought the house for because you yeah. love, but they're being eaten away underneath in the subfloor, you've got no rights once you enter into the contract. You've bought it.
1: I 100% agree. I think it's crazy using a real estate agent's building and pest. It's just They're just too conflicted. It's just too many people there that aren't there to protect you. And you're the one taking out the huge debt. You're the one who's buying this property. You can't really be kind of outsourcing that due diligence. And I think there's just too much conflict there using a building and pest from that real estate agent. Because end of the day, there's always the argument, okay, I paid for it. I can go and sue them but it's too late you already yeah. own the property you're he living wants in the to property yeah. yeah. it mean, it's just it so the exactly process right. going through that yeah. so just cut that risk away it's find, knowledge yeah. it's
2: knowledge before you commit yeah right so if you got that pest and building and you find out that there are i had this beautiful property in the eastern suburbs it was gorgeous and they fell in love with the the period features and the beautiful wooden floorboards that had been polished and but they were they had current termite activity throughout the entire house. They still wanted the house but they changed their pricing mm. and they still got it but they were able to say, this is what the report's saying, this is how much it's going to cost us to fix this so we reduce our price accordingly. At least you know yeah. up front and that's the point. You've got Your due diligence is finding out before you can. Yeah. Getting good advice before you commit is an
0: insurance policy, and this is the thing that we don't like paying for insurance because yeah. we think we're never going to have to claim on it. You know, and mm. it, it feels like a pure cost. It is a pure cost until you claim on it, and and these are all risk mitigating um mm. costs. And I mean, I know I hate paying for things that I'm physically not getting as well. Mm. But I tell you, after the event, if you are able to call on that or save yourself. Hell, because it is hell if you make mistakes with regard to property. It's mm-hmm. revolting. It's an awful way to live with that regret. And the financial and, the, and just the knock on effects of making massive mistakes with property cannot be underestimated. And, you know, I really get, I get very passionate about this because I do see people who are in extreme pain because of silly things that they've done through faulty thinking. Um, and this is one of them this whole idea about, oh, look, that's cheap, it's a $90 inspection. You know, I don't have to go and pay $600 to get my own. Now, I know that sometimes time does not allow. And yeah. also I know that sometimes those, as a first step in the process, it's quite useful to read those reports. And depending on who's done them, sometimes we actually will advise the client actually buy that one. and But we also, as a follow-on from that, we'll call the inspector as well. Yeah. But it also depends very much on who the, who has done the inspection and whether we know them And that's because of our experience that we have come across them in the Mm. past. If they're a total no name, then we will uh, recommend our own. The other thing that I want to ask you, Jenny, is around the difference between a conveyancer and a lawyer. Now, can you explain a bit on that? And and I imagine that there's some limitations in terms of what you can and can't do that a lawyer can and can't. But can you give us a we just don't have a
2: full law degree? Mm. We have a, a degree that specifies in property law that allows us to act on the sale and purchase of residential, commercial property. Uh, We can do the sale and purchase of businesses, uh, commercial leasing. We can't give tax advice. We can't uh, give uh, financial advice. Um, We're just limited in terms of the law of conveyancing and everything connecting with that. So instead of doing a six plus year law degree, we do a two to three year degree through uh, a university.
1: Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do, dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress, mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Jenny, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories.
2: I've got one at the very moment where they've bought and off the plan for a very high price and the vendor has served registration wants to settle in two weeks, has issued a final occupation certificate. Yep. But the building actually isn't complete, oh. and <laughs> isn't safe to occupy. Yeah. And yesterday in the storm, because there were no windows, yeah, uh, the place has been damaged. And wow. you, I've I, I've had one in Balmoral where they were selling the units at six million plus. Yeah. They issued a final occupation certificate, yet, yet clients couldn't actually go and do a final inspection yep. because it was still a construction site. <gasps> yeah. No and way, they weren't so allowed on the site.
0: Who's issued the final completion certificate? Yeah. The
2: uh, yep, the developer yep. has got a certifier who's yep. acceptable oh to God. the council. So in that point, I have to get a law firm in yeah. to basically not give rights but also act in that specific part because <laughs> that's, uh, you know, we have rights of rescission and, and, and rights to not complete. But uh, we have to, at this point, I will probably have to get advice just to make sure that w- the way we act now going forward is in her best interest. I've
1: had this as well. It's so, you know, because basically you have to settle on the property before it's actually finished and which is just wow. crazy. So you're having to buy oh. a $2 million apartment. And this is one that the very famous new building in Bondi, it's, you know, the Pacific yeah. building. Oh. I've got yeah, what yeah. it is. Um, and um, <laughs> I had a client who bought two apartments in there and, you know, and this is, they've come to me after buying them. I don't wouldn't recommend them, but. You know, out of all the off the plan apartments out there, it's probably a good building. It's a good location, et cetera, but still wouldn't buy it. But the, you know, the, <laughs> on that, on that building though, you know, a couple of weeks, it hasn't finished. The foyer's not done. Yep. People were still walking past builders and they were saying this building's finished. You need yep, to settle. You got to settle because they
2: got to pay their bank. And oh, so yeah. they're trying to make you settle so they can start paying their bank back.
1: And so I don't know all the complications yeah. in that one and why, but you can see where the problem starts. So a, a build, a developer can hire a builder, right? And they're not, they're not the same people, no. right? Yeah. And mm. so the developer saying, look, you need to, you told me, you promised me that you would build this for a hundred million and you told me that it would be done in two years. And if it's not done in two years and it's two years and one month, I'm going to start charging you a daily expense or, and start cutting into your profit every day that you're late. And so what happens is, you know, weather or mm-hmm. getting materials or staffing problems, there's so many things that could go wrong yeah. for the builder. And then all of a sudden they're a month late and every day money is crewing. So they want to get this settled as quick as possible. And, um, you, you, what leg have you got to stand on then really? Besides, you know, it's very hard.
2: Yeah. You just have to fight and fight and threaten, um, And another really good example of that, Chris, is the defects period Mm. and the defects list, Mm. because they'll very rarely let you do more than one list now. And even though you've got three months, they will make you do your defects as part of your final inspection. Most oh. of the time, <laughs> so the defects list is done before <laughs> completion, and you don't have a right to add anything to that because you've signed off on it with uh, the agent. And you wouldn't
0: even know that you. That but you you've... don't
2: know till you move in.
0: Of course, you don't. Okay, I you, mean... you're not
2: going to see everything when you do a ten minute final inspection because yeah. they're hurting you through, you know, because they've got all. You know, they've got to do final inspections on all the units to get them all settled. And I've had this so many times where I'll say, "Do not sign a final inspection." Uh, defects list with them, do not do it. You can get an independent defects. You know, my builder who mm. does all my building will go and do a defects inspection for you and give you a list. And then you've got three months post-completion to add to that list. Because okay. there's a lot of things you don't know until you move in, that the light might be faulty, oh, so true. or the fan makes a really weird noise. The don't or don't work. Or, yeah, the door or doesn't leak, work. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Right. But okay, so how many people take you up on that? versus those that get pressured into signing it on the day? Oh, not many. Not many take you up on yeah, it, so because most they, get pressured and bec- sign yeah, on the day. Yeah, because
2: they listen to if, – if oh. she'll be right, mate. And you've got to remember that a lot oh. of these vendors wind themselves up immediately after <sighs> completion. Mm. So are you trying to even get them to do the defects? They've gone. This is yeah. the
0: elephant in the room. This is the elephant driving us. This is that sort of – unnecessary, you know, these emotional responses and the fear and everything that drives and the pressure and and it's actually completely and utterly unnecessary and yet whipped up within us because of the actual circumstances of the whole monumental thing you're doing. And so we all need to protect ourselves better and if you're getting good advice like Jenny's advice, Oh, take it for God's sake. Yeah. And this isn't yeah. just on off
1: the plan apartments because, you know, we're, we live in the inner ring and we see it, you know, the apartments are getting built around us. It's not house and land packages. But this is actually quite common in house and land packages where, you know, a builder is basically, you know, building the property and then they want you to settle on the house mm. and land package and the landscaping's not done and the roads aren't done and things like that. It's very common that, mm. you know, in these house and land packages that the builder's doing it as cheap as they can, using Mm -hmm. the cheapest materials and walls aren't painted and there's holes. And you you basically, you're trying to, after you've settled, it's so hard to start. They try it on. Yeah.
2: They try it on. And unless you've got someone who knows what to do, you you will complete and you've got very little chance of getting it done once you complete and pay your money. Yeah. I mean, that's that's, that's your your bargaining chip, isn't it? That's your bargaining chip and, and that's what you've got. There was a site in Mossman where I acted for maybe five purchases in the development, they tried to make us settle. They hadn't even installed hot water systems. Yeah, yeah. So they hadn't installed the cupboards. Yeah. And they were trying to make us settle. It's like, are you serious? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've actually had almost the exact same thing. You know, the the whole hot water system wasn't working and they had to settle on this new house and land package. It was out of Sydney um, and yeah, they it was like, it's ridiculous. How can you help possibly move into this place?
0: And yeah. it's in- interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, they try it on and of course they try it on because they're doing this day in, day mm. out where the individual purchaser is doing this maybe once in their life even and mm. maybe the first time ever and... and I think if you actually buy off the plan once, you probably never do it no. again. Maybe <laughs> 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 oh, well, some, well, sometimes people
1: do it three times because by the time they've signed the first one, they, don't they haven't settled on the mm. first on that because it takes three or four years, and mm. you know their consistency bias and their confirmation bias. Um, usually, they sometimes you know, the spruikers have signed them up to two or three properties all over the country um, because they've, you know, and they're bought in a boom. And mm-hmm. when you're bought in a boom, you, you start to think, oh, I'm so glad I bought that because if I want, try to buy another apartment today, oh, it's like 50000 more and I've made $50,000. You haven't made $50,000 no. yet. You're, um, you've are um, still got no. three or four years to go. Yeah. So cl- the sunset clause um, with off the plan, can you explain how that really works and, you know, the risks, I guess, for the buyer on if they do enact that and how long it can potentially go for?
2: Uh, So what a sunset clause does is it puts a time limit on how long it will take the vendor to complete the development and complete the contract. Yep. So so a vendor will work out that that sunset date is how long it's going to take them. They're not going to put it out forever because they want to be able to build it, get paid, move on to the next development. Mm. But like we've talked about before, there's always delays outside of their control whether it's getting something through council, uh, you know, weather, mm. um, delays, all of that kind of thing. Builders going broke. Yeah. So they'll have a right of extension to that sunset date for things that are out of their control. But you still, a lot of the time those sunset dates will either not have a time limit on them. Yeah, I was yep. about to say, do you have to? Have time? Uh, and they right of, yeah. You, well, you, otherwise your contract's never ending. So you I mean, might have no a right time. to extend. But I've seen clauses where they'll say, so, so the sunset date might be three years out from when we exchange contracts and they have a right to extend it for another two years. Mm. But some of them will say we've just got a right to extend if it's out of our control and now I've got to try and get a limit on that right of extension mm. because you don't want to be sitting there waiting five years with your deposit locked up, um, unable to get access and not be able to um, do anything. And um, I was very lucky about four months ago to get a young man out of a contract, very similar. He had a three-year sunset date and it was coming up to three years and they still didn't even have development approval. And oh, he, oh, he was th- the first home buyer. I he had put, he, down, he had put down $65,000. His circumstances had changed. He'd met someone. Yep, they exactly. wanted to get yeah. their money out. Uh, and He wanted to buy something with her. Um, and I was, I was very lucky that the contract that was prepared by the, by the vendor solicitor was so bad that there was no right of extension, uh, there, there was no rights at all uh, yeah. that the vendor and I just basically went I to town it. on it and just, <laughs> um, you know, I sort of rolled up my sleeves and I went, right, here we go because there was, yeah. there was no way I was going to let this fellow, you know, lose his deposit and um, we got him out and we got the money back and he settled last week on a property that he bought with his partner. So not brand new? Not brand new, yeah, and it was just such a great story. Mm. Um, but, but the
1: big—that must have been a very small-time developer, and who was yeah. just first time they've ever done yep. it. You know, I they're, yeah. they're yeah. making so, all the common mistakes oh. that no developer in the big end of yep. town will mm. ever make. Yeah, that's exactly what you know. Happened. And so, if that was, you know, a big name, I don't need to name them, but there's a lot of big name developers out there. Um, and you look at their contracts, there's oh. no way you would have been able to get out of that. no way, you know, because a lot of what they put put in that contract is it also stops people selling prior on mm. selling, yeah, and you cannot on sell, yeah, and if I was a developer, there's a hundred percent I would have that in my clause because if i the last thing I would want to do, if the market moves um is people start selling the apartments that they paid a million dollars for to fire selling them for nine hundred thousand. And that getting out on the street. Or even the
0: opposite.
2: Yeah, but the reason why those clauses came yeah. in was that people were buying them and realizing a year's time that they'd made capital growth of yeah. $100,000, 150000 because that was what the market was doing and they unsold it. Exactly. And so they still have to complete. Mm. What people don't realize is they still have to complete, mm. but they walk away with the capital gain, yeah. not the developer. Mm. And yeah. that's why that clause came in. Because the developer wanted to restrict them from being able to take the capital gain. They wanted to have the right yep. to rescind the contract and take the capital exactly gain themselves. Exactly right. And yeah.
0: I've seen that happen, not obviously with any of our clients because we do not buy off the plan, <laughs> but, but I yeah. absolutely have seen situations where the developers found a way to rescind. Yeah. It certainly hasn't happened in the last 18 no, months. No, well, the legislation changed <laughs> yeah. because oh, they were okay. doing it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: No, that changed because they were purposely delaying mm, yeah. the development so they get to the sunset date yep. rescind because they had it committed in a contract to sell it for a million and yep. the market was telling them that unit was now worth 1.2 yeah so they'd rescind under the sunset date provisions mm. of the contract yep. put it back on the market and get it for 1.2 yeah yeah so legis- uh, the, the state government changed that when did
0: that happen when did that get when
2: uh well Baird did it so
0: Okay. Three years, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly in the boom, because that that, that is what was happening for sure.
1: But in a downturn, though, it also makes sense. You know, like if you are a big name developer, the last thing you do want people to have to, who'd be completely spooked by the market, and there'd be a lot of people right now that would want to get out of their contracts and would take a lower sale price Mm -hmm. than what it's actually, you know, they bought it for.
0: certainly if the developer's still selling stock in there, then that would be they'd be worried about, wouldn't they? Yeah, and if Undercut that goes, by their own
1: buyers if that goes on record or a new valuer finds out about it, um, you know then when they actually finally do come to settle, these things there's new prices that have been created and those can be under the purchase price. yeah, but
2: that developer's got that at that buyer at that mm. initial contract price. yeah, but and then they all, still have to settle at that price.
1: but then if the developer can't settle the other hundred or three hundred apartments or thousand apartments mm. because everyone has valuation issues, because people before in the last, you know, six months have been on selling for bargain prices because they don't want to get out.
0: That's actually, I don't think people fire selling prior to settlement is going to impact on the valuations. Valuations are going to come in low anyway, regardless, aren't they? Even if there was no fire sales.
1: Yeah, but I think every developer wants to believe and wants to limit any sales prior that are under the sale price because, you know, if if that does get out in the market, that you've started to create a, a new floor. And, you know, I guess a lot of developers are very closely... You know, working with valuers to try to make sure that the mm. valuations come in because if mm. the valuations don't come in at purchase price, the developer can't well, settle. Stuffed. And so, <laughs>
2: just, you know, it's
1: the, his
0: house
2: of cards. That yeah, one. it's really interesting actually because mm. I was looking at an investment myself mm. at the beginning of the year, and the developer wanted me to look at. Were you looking at off lenders. the plan. Oh no! It had just been built. <laughs> it had just been built, so mm. it was all done. Mm. Um, didn't go ahead because you know why would you? buy? in Brisbane, but at the time I was looking at it, right? So, um, but the developer was not only trying to influence me as to the lender, but wanted the lender to use specific valuers. Yep.
0: Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Alarm bells, alarm bells, obviously. Oh, and it was like, off. well, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah,
2: of course. And it was like, uh, no, we're no. not doing that. Why would you be doing that?
1: Yeah. yeah. I do put some posts on LinkedIn sometimes <laughs> and uh, around low valuation. And it's so funny because you'll get comments like, Oh, we'll just order another valuation, or we'll just go to another lender, and it's like, yeah, this is not a solution. We've already got a problem with one valuer. We we start we're ordering another valuation. Oh. You can't just lenders. keep
2: going till you get what you want. <laughs> yeah. oh, I know yeah. it's
0: like a toddler, you know, continues upping the ante in the yeah. supermarket, wanting a chopper chop. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, recently I did a corporate I did corporate presentations every now and then on, and one of the ones I like to. Do is seven ways you can lose money on property. <laughs> people don't often think, they don't expect a buyer's agent to come in and talk about how you can lose money. Um, and, look, sometimes I can get a little bit hard on this whole off-the-plan risk thing. And I know I asked the question, and I should probably be careful when I do this, but say who here has bought off the plan, people put their hand up, and who here is waiting for it to settle is <laughs> in the settlement period. A um, couple of people still had their hand up. And, and one woman, you know, I just said, oh, look, you know, there's a real thing, there's a thing now, it's called settlement risk. I don't think there was even a term for that previously, but now there is a term for that and it's because of this valuation and, and there's also history, there's history showing you that it's the highest, um, you know, at all the property classes in this country, it's the, it's the largest property class in terms of loss making sales, mm. uh, in terms of the first sale after settlement. And so therefore, and there's a very high chance and in some valuers are saying over 50% of off the plan sales being valued at the moment are coming in at less than purchase price. So that's Mm -hmm. a very high probability that you are going to get your valuation coming in at less than than you've agreed to pay. So go and talk to your broker now. Go and work on your strategy now. Go and talk to your, your lawyer, conveyancer now and work out what your situation is going to be. She wanted to argue with me. I can tell. You know, she's oh I know what I'm doing blah blah. And I was like oh god. I... Anyway, I sort of went a little bit hard on it. I felt I felt a bit bad afterwards. I actually sent an email to the person that organised it and said, look, here's a list of, <laughs> of uh, mortgage brokers, and you were on that list, Chris. You really do need to go and address this. Do not wait until the developer serves you notice. Um, you need to get onto Absolutely. this proactively. Yeah. And so for any of you listeners out there that are in this situation, you know, you're in it, right? So you've got to deal with it the best way you can. No point digging your head in the sand. You have to proactively go out there and work out what your options are. So get a good broker and go and talk to someone like Jenny mm. about that contract. 100%.
1: Well, don't go to the broker force, get a solicitor, get a conveyancer on it first, because you want to figure out, um, you know, whether you can get out of it and you know, the bro, if, if you're going to have a, a, and that's the first of all, I verse, first advice I do is can you get out of the contract? Is there a way? And if they don't know the answer to that question, then I'll pass it on to someone like Jenny and say, go through it, through the fine tooth, go find that if you can, mm-hmm. if you cannot. And there's, and I ask, I keep going back to me, sure, are you sure? Get a second opinion because. If you cannot get out of it, that means you have to settle.
2: Mm -hmm. You have to settle unless you can find uh, someone to on-sell or the vendor agrees to rescind, you've entered into an Mm -hmm. unconditional contract.
1: And if you can't settle because the valuation comes in low, you haven't got a 20% deposit that you need now, or a 30% deposit that you might need now, which is crazy. You were banking on a 10% deposit. (laughs) Um, What happens when you can't settle? And then the property, for example, the developer has to sell that property for a much lower price than what you ah, paid. So
2: the vendor has terminated your contract because you failed to complete. Yeah. He's taken your deposit. Yep, He's probably been charging you default interest while you argue about whether you can complete or not. And then he can sue you. He can sue you for the deposit he Can sue you for the loss. So the loss is uh, the price he ends up selling it for. Uh, so if you... Difference had, between, the difference between yeah. what you were committed to buy it for and what they eventually sell it for, plus all the additional agents' fees, legal fees, well, that's that's their loss, and they can sue you for that.
0: And you know, for first home buyers, let's forget investors for a minute. First home buyers who've got themselves in this trap—that's pretty much it. You're done. You're done. You know, you yeah. you you're bankrupt. Well, yeah, because you, you know you're, you've saved your deposit, and you're going to need more than that to pay out this developer. And, yeah, what are you going to do? I mean, it's a horrible situation, but it's a very real situation for a lot of people at the moment.
2: But it's a really good point what you say about going and seeing someone sort of, you know, six months out from when they're telling you it's complete because you would have gone and spoken to a broker at the time you entered into the contract in terms of your numbers and your lending. That's a very different market now. But if you are sort of staying in contact with your broker uh, through the process and looking at what the changes are in your lending and your circumstances might be different, if you know six months out that you now need to find another 10%, at least you know that. Mm. That's, again, information gathering. Um, or, if it's, or if it's worth, you know, less, then you need to understand what your, what your rights are, what your obligations are under the contract um, or whether it's a matter of you, you still want to buy it but you're going to have to save another 10% mm. and find access to another 10%. And
1: sometimes Um, people can't. So, you know, like, so there's one client at the moment, you know, it's a referral of a client, they've come to me, um, you know, it's one of his staff members and basically they've signed up to an off the plan, you know, in ride I'll you know, tell you where it is and you know, they've signed at 870. and, um, you know, they've put their 10% deposit down. They haven't, they've got enough money for the stamp duty and the costs and things like that. And they were told when they signed the contract that they could borrow at 90%. Mm. Um, we'll be lucky to get 80% on this and, Mm -hmm. you know, and 80% of the purchase price. That's another $90,000 that they haven't got that Mm. they need, but there's no chance this is going to come in at 870. There's more likely this is probably going to come in at 750 to 800. And so for these guys, um, there's zero way that they can settle. And so they, they, in their mind, they said, that's fine. We're going to take it on the chin. We're going to walk away from the deposit, which is $87,000. That means they had 130 that they saved you know, over many years for, they've just had their first baby, you know, Mm. as well, and they've just got, they were going to move into this apartment. And, um, so they're going to lose that. So they're going to have 40 grand left over. The problem is they haven't just lost their deposit and it depends on how nice this developer is going to be, because if they don't have, let's say they have 30 or 40% of their apartments can't settle, um, they're going to start and they're going to start accruing some losses. So they're going to start chasing all these people who haven't settled and yep. for the loss and, um, you know, who knows where that ends. And so. It's, it's and that's what's
2: going to, be, that's what we're going to see now going forward yeah. where before they could easily have sold it for more than what the initial contract was for. So they'd go, yeah, no worries, because we'll take the capital gain and, mm. um, ourselves and put it back on the market. Cause we know we'll sell it for more. That's not the case. It's not going to happen. So it's a very different market out there now.
0: There you go. Well, I think on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much, Jenny. And no, I'm heartened to some degree that other professionals in this space suffer the same things that yeah. I suffer. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I'm disheartened by that because that's it, it's a very big commitment you're making when you buy a property. And I think you you know, we have to get over this idea that we all are experts at buying property because we live in them and we Mm. think we know them. We have to actually recognise the risks, go and get appropriate advice and be prepared to pay for it as an insurance policy against some of the terrible things that can go wrong. But when it goes well, when it goes right, oh, my God, what a good thing it is. Thank you so much, Jenny, for your time.
2: You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jenny.
1: We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is...
0: What you can do if you are currently in the situation where you have bought a property off the plan and you haven't yet settled. Well, get in and be proactive about that if you're in that situation, if you are in that settlement period for a property that you've committed to off the off the plan. Understand that there are things that could go terribly wrong for you and get in early to get good advice. So Chris is saying, I was saying before from a broker and then a conveyancer or a lawyer. So Chris is actually saying, do it the other way around. Number one, see if you can get out of it. Number two, what are your options and actually put together a plan if you have a way of getting out of it without losing your shirt. The other thing that I want to I really talk about here before we wrap up this episode is that this isn't because the market has slowed down. You know, this is actually because developers have been allowed to really heavily market this sort of property two very vulnerable buyers. Okay. Now vulnerable buyers out there, you need to stand up and take responsibility for your financial future. Okay. Unsophisticated investors have been falling for the sales tricks of spruikers and developers. That's the way it has been. Okay. We've got to talk tough here. This is an elephant. I am very sympathetic, but at the same time, we've all been greedy. All of us are greedy, okay, Mm -hmm. and we've got to accept this is about greed. First home buyers, you know, falling for this sales pitch about buying off the plan and the panic and the FOMO that's been driving everything, there's an undercurrent of greed in that, right? You don't want to buy an established, boring, three-storey, red brick, you know, apartment as your first step into the market. You want to go and buy the flash exciting thing and tell everyone how successful you've been in making money before you've even settled, right? But this is the fact. It's not like that. And so, you know, I just want to be really clear that this is not about the market. This is about human beings being greedy and not taking responsibility for their own decisions.
1: Yeah, but I wonder who's being greedy. Is it the person selling the property to the person that they know is not a very good property or is it the, the first home buyer or the frustrated investor that just doesn't know and wants to do something for their financial future, wants to take responsibility for their financial future, but then gets taken up the wrong path? And, you know, and as whether it's, and you know, the state government's got a huge part to play in this, mm. in my belief, you know, end of the day, they've got stamp duty exemptions for first home buyers and grants and everything and saying new, buy new, yeah, and buy still, new.
0: And if we get a Labor or federal government, that's that's going to be more of that yeah you know and and I agree. The whole system is set up to shove unsophisticated investors and first home buyers, the very people that are a the most vulnerable and B the least knowledgeable when it comes to what they're buying,
2: mm. they are being funneled and encouraged to buy off the plan property. But it's even as simple as you want to buy property. doesn't make you an expert in property. No, mm.
0: or you live okay. in one, you're not an expert you're you're, you're
2: looking at property. And you're in the market and you're looking at places and, you, and you're not an expert. You need to rely on the people that do it day in, day out and know what they're talking about um, and listen to the advice and pay for that advice. Yeah. It's important. Mm. Um, you know, we're here to help you. Yep. Yep. Um, but, but take the advice. Everyone thinks that they are an expert in mm. real estate. It's our passion in this mm. country. We all yeah. love real estate but we all think we're experts at it. And I have no idea about lending. I would not even presume to give Mm. advice on lending or how to sell a property, Mm. but I know what I do and I know what I'm doing and um, I will quite happily help. But um, there's nothing more frustrating for me than being told how to do my job by people who think they know how to do it. Because all I'm trying to do is help them. Yeah. Um and and they then find themselves in the situations you're talking about, Veronica, and they look to everyone else to blame. Yeah.
0: Please join us for our next episode when we interview CEO of REI New South Wales, that's Real Estate Institute of New South Wales, Tim McGibbon. We cover a lot of ground. Tim is very feisty when it comes to uh, the Office of Fair Trading in the New South Wales State Government and their involvement in the property industry, why they don't know what they're doing, how it manifests, and how it actually impacts consumers at the end of the day. So a really interesting and spirited conversation. Uh, There's some absolute gems in there that you really want to know about, particularly if you own property in New South Wales. Don't forget
1: we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter.
0: Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you.
1: Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you.
0: The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk, editorial by Gordie Fletcher.
1: Until next week, don't be a dumbo.
0: Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.